Hey everybody, welcome to Wednesday Night Fellowship. Uh, my name is John, I'm the campus pastor. It's great to be back with you all uh, again this week uh, on this Wednesday night. You all excited for spring break? Yes. Me too, me too. Um, every Wednesday this semester we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, as we've been saying, it's a, uh, it's a letter that really can be divided into two parts. Part one really is chapters one to eight. It's Paul sort of explaining what the gospel is or the good news about Jesus, what it is, what it means. And really that second half, particularly chapters 12 through 16, kind of flushes out uh, what it means to live in light of the gospel. We are now coming to the conclusion of that first half uh, of Paul's letter. We're looking at the very last verses of chapter 8. And we're going to hear tonight sort of Paul trying to put a bow or a ribbon uh, on everything that he said, uh, said thus far. It's uh, the passage that we're going to look at. He starts off by saying, what then shall we say in response to these things? And you might ask, well, what things is he talking about? Well, I happen to think he's talking about everything that's come before it. What we've been saying all semester long. What shall we say in response to that? The situation where, if you were here, uh, God is sort of over in this corner. He's righteous. He's good. He's holy. He's it's beautiful and love and justice. And we're over here, right? Made in his image. We have intrinsic dignity and worth, but we're sinners too. We're not righteous. We're not well, right? God has done something to reconcile that situation, to reconcile us, to make it possible for, who, for us who are not righteous to be all right in God's sight. We can have peace with God. Not just today, not just tomorrow, but every day for the rest of your life and in the life to come. What do we say in response to that, this good news? Is there a way to summarize, synthesize, or even crystallize the truths of what we've heard? And Paul, this is, this is Paul's attempt to do just that. Listen in. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word for us tonight. I'm going to pray and ask that he'd help us to understand it. Father, thanks for bringing us together on this Wednesday night. Thank you that you don't leave us in the dark. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken. You, you make yourself known to us. You've given us this, this word and the one to whom all of these words point. So I pray now by your spirit, you'd help us to see 
him. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to hear what he has to say to us tonight. Make our hearts soft and receptive that we might receive and believe what it is you want to impress upon us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all, a couple of years ago, um, my family and I went through probably one of the hardest seasons of life that I faced, maybe my wife has faced too. Um, I won't go into all of the details, but a church that we were a part of, it started to fall apart. A person I was close to started to say some pretty awful things about me and my family. And things just got really anxious and stressful. It sort of felt like, are we going to be able to stay here in Burlington? Am I going to be able to continue to minister at UVM, which I love to do? Just felt like the future, our time here, everything just felt like up in the air. And as a way of just kind of keeping myself sane, sort of calming me down, uh, I began collecting really smooth stones from a river. And I'd hold these stones, and I'd walk around with rocks in my pocket. There's parts of the scriptures that talk about God being our rock and our salvation. Um, There's a story of David and Goliath where he goes to a brook and he finds five smooth stones to like slay a giant. Sort of felt like that at times. Like, I just need some stones to slay a giant. (laughs) Just something, a touchstone. Like literally something I could just put in my pocket to remind me that God is my rock. He's my salvation. And he's close to me. He's close at hand. He's like right here with me. And that really saw me through just this really stressful, anxious time. Paul concludes the first half of his letter with five questions. And at the heart of all of these questions are two theological diamonds. They're not even rocks for your pocket. I think they're diamonds for you to have with you. Diamonds that will shine a light on the rest of this letter that will help us interpret what it means to live in light with the gospel. But these are diamonds for your pocket. They're diamonds for you to carry with you. They're diamonds for you to kind of go with you wherever you will go. In a nutshell, the gospel is the good news that God's love will always defend you. Verses sort of 31 to 34. And God's love will always be on you. Verses 35 to 39. God's love will always defend you. God's love will always be on you. And this isn't just good news generally speaking. And it's not just good news for Paul's original audience. But it's good news for all of us in this room. All of us who are living in this time and in this place. This here and now. What the Montreal-based band Arcade Fire calls the age of anxiety. You've probably heard of like different historical ages. You've heard of the the Stone Age. You've heard of the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, the Industrial Age. What age are we living in? People call it the Information Age, the Internet Age, the age of the iPhone. I like Arcade's Fire. It's the age of anxiety. In this age of anxiety, we all carry computers in our pockets, right? Like, there's more technology in this than, like, actually put, like, the man on the moon. Like, we have incredible computers in our pockets. There used to be a time in history where people would sit down at a computer and they would 
have chat and they would type, you know, BRB, like I'll be right back because I actually have to leave the computer to do something else. And then I'll come back and I'll continue what I was doing. We don't do that anymore. There is no BRB. We're on the internet all the time. We're always on. We're always connected. We never leave. It never leaves us. Right? Because we have this computer in our pocket all the time, we're incessantly distracted. It's constantly pinging. It's constantly notifying us. It's constantly calling us out of the present thing, whatever it is that we're doing. We have the world sort of at our fingertips, the world in our pockets, sort of reminding us of all the various different places we could be besides the place that we're in. Right? The average American touches their smartphone uh, smartphone 2,600 times a day. Like... Statistically, for your age demographic, it's like higher. You're touching your phone more than just 2,000 times a day. And more often than not, it's like when you're bored or you're lonely. And when you're going onto your phone and you're bored and you're lonely, just about anything looks better than your life looks like in that moment. You know? Most of the time that we're on our, our phones um, is spent on social media. Instagram is pretty much an envy generator. It's constantly comparing, your, you know, just showing you lots of different things to compare your, your life to. All right. Countless studies show the more time you spend on, on, on your phones, on social media, the more depressed that you feel. Right? It's this, this constant comparison, this constant exposure to pixelated perfection, whether that's in pornography or advertising or even that snapshot of a friend uh, took, you know, from that party at like this angle where everything just looks better at like that angle, right? (laughs) All of this, right, kind of coalesces the distraction, the world at your fingertips, everybody's life looking better than mine, it, 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 it produces anxiety. The constant connection, the constant comparison, the constant even competition, it's anxiety-inducing. And it's not just anxiety-inducing. It, it, it creates feelings of insecurity. Feelings like, I'm not enough. Uh, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not witty enough. I'm not cool enough. I'm not popular enough. I'm not productive Enough. I'm not enough. Feelings of insecurity. But it's not just that we feel insecure about ourselves. There's something about it that makes us feel not safe or protected. Sort of all the problems of the world are brought right to our noses as we stare at our screens and our beds. Like we feel like even the, our rooms, which are supposed to be our havens, like the world is just coming in and telling us stories of Global pandemics and climate change and school shootings and terrorism and war. Like we can't get away from it. Even things that start on the other side of the globe, like we're having to mask up and deal with it. Because we, it's all around us. And so it's not just that I feel insecure in here or you feel like insecure in here. I feel insecure all around me. I just, it just doesn't feel safe. People are afraid to get married and have kids or fear of the future that they're going to inherit. Friends, it's the age of anxiety. It's an age of fear. It's in us. It's all around us. 
And there is something tragic and ironic about our situation. Because compared to our ancestors and compared to most around the globe, we are the wealthiest people to have ever lived. Us in this room, we're some of the wealthiest people to have ever lived in history. We are maybe some of the healthiest too. Life expectancy has never been higher. And our technological power grows by the minute and the hour. But far from alleviating stress and anxiety, these things seem to be causing it or exacerbating it. And this is the irony. We have never been more powerful, and yet we've never felt more insecure. Think about that. Never more powerful, never more insecure. We feel insecure about ourselves. We feel insecure about our future because we are, as Arcade Fire says, living in the age of anxiety. It's here, in the age of anxiety, where the good news about Jesus touches down and touches your life. God's love will always defend you. And God's love will always be on you. Look at verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, of course, you and I will have adversaries in this life. Okay. We are living in a culture that says there is no God, that he's irrelevant at best. So you should just do whatever makes you feel good. We hear this messaging all kinds of ways from all different directions. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming at times. But that's kind of an abstract adversary, right? Culture. So we, we can just sort of zoom in a little bit and sort of get into the nitty-gritty details, right? Like, you're going to have conflict with people, right? Sometimes that conflict is like, yo, bro, don't leave dishes in the dishwasher. Or dishes in the sink, put them in the dishwasher, right? Or like, take the trash out for once. But, you know, some of it's less mundane, right? You're not always going to get people's approval. You can't get along with everybody. That's just the way things are. There's going to be people in your life who think that you are stupid for following Jesus. If you're following Jesus, they're going to think that's stupid. There's going to be people in your life who think that it's stupid for you to say no to things that they readily say yes to. Like, why would you deny yourself? You only live once. So why say no? Right? They, don't, they don't understand. They don't get it. You're not sort of facing the same kinds of persecution that the Romans were facing, you know, where it's like, you don't go with the flow, they're going to feed you to lions. But if you don't go with the flow, you're gonna, you will face ostracism. You might face... You might face Ridicule. You might face cancellation. They, like, there are people who are against you. And think about this. Some of our biggest adversaries aren't out there, but they're in here. So, like, maybe the biggest adversary you face is your inner critic. When we say something wrong or we make a mistake, it's easy for us to berate ourselves and to hate ourselves. Like the way that we self-talk or the way that we like deal with ourselves, we would never talk to another human being that way. We would never talk to our friends that way. We wouldn't even maybe talk to our enemies that way, but we do it to ourselves. We can be our worst and harshest critic. But what this is saying in verse 31, and what we've seen so far this semester, 
is that God is for you. God being for you does not mean that he affirms everything that you do. Okay? There is plenty in your life and plenty in mine that's backwards and needs course correcting. But God is for you. Which means despite your sins and your shortcomings, God loves you. And he's willing to die to defend you. Because he's for you. And he's for your good. And he is for your restoration. Do you all remember the scene in The Lion King where Mufasa tells Simba and Nala not to go to the elephant graveyard? And Simba says, okay, dad. And then he just, he goes to the elephant graveyard. You all remember this? Sure enough, amongst elephant bones, Simba and Nala run into three hyenas. Remember this? The hyenas are against them. They're snapping their teeth. They're like ready to pounce. Simba tries to roar, but only like meow, right, comes out. He tries again. It's not working. He tries again. This huge roar comes out, and the hyenas run. Simba's feeling pretty proud of himself until he turns around and he realizes that didn't come from me. That came from my dad. He looks behind. He realizes that his dad is there to defend him. And this is my favorite way to illustrate this truth. There are a lots of adversaries out there, sort of hyenas who are looking at you, want to snap at you. There are voices within and voices without that are trying to get you to go the wrong way, trying to put you down, trying to kill your joy, trying to fill you with shame. But there is a roar that is louder than all of these voices that can silence all of your critics, including your inner one, and that makes your enemies hightail and run. That is the voice of your father who is for you, not against you. The voice of the one whose love defends you. Let's reread the next few verses. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is the thrust of Paul's argument. Do you think that God, who is infinitely, infinitely generous towards you in the person of Jesus, do you think that this side of the cross, he's going to start nickel and diming you? Do you think he's going to give you everything and now, like, start arguing about change? No, that's not going to happen. There's no way that's going to happen. He has not left this up to doubt. If you look at the cross, you will see God is hanging there defending you. God gives up his life. He sacrifices his son's life to defend you. And he's not just doing so on a cross once upon a time. He is defending you still today. Look at verses 33 to 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God right now and is also interceding for us. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying God is the judge. And the judge has justified you. He's declared you innocent. He's declared you all right. Nobody can overturn this judge's judgment. Nobody can condemn 
Those he's declared innocent are okay. There is no higher power than God. There is no further or higher up like court of appeals. He is the supreme judge in the supreme court of supreme courts. And if God, who sits at the tippity top, says that you are are all right in his sight, do you know what that makes you? All right in his sight. I don't think that you fully understand or appreciate the weight of what I've just said. I don't think I even fully understand the weight and the significance of it. Because if, it really, if this really sinks in, that the one who is at the tippity top, whose opinion and estimation and vote counts the most, if he is for you, it matters nothing what other people might say about you. It matters nothing what you might even say about you. His vote counts. And he says, you are all right in my sight. You are my delight. I am infatuated with you. My love defends you. He is for you, friends, and he is for your good. And do you see how this utterly demolishes and evaporates our insecurity? That feeling that I'm not enough. Do you see how this just does like works on that? It, 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 it makes it go away. But you might ask, what if God has a change of heart? What if he changes his mind? Paul says here in verses 33 and 34, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. Jesus didn't just die defending you. Jesus was resurrected and he's raised to the right hand of the Father where by his presence and by his prayers on your behalf, he is defending you still every single minute of every single day. When your name comes up in conversation between the Father and the Son, Jesus is there just to remind us that, yo, he's with us. I don't know if he says yo, right? But he's, he's ours. He's one of us. And I was thinking, how do I illustrate that to you? I was like, well, it's kind of like when we go skiing, if you've ever gone skiing, right? If you, I ski at snow, I'm sure it's this way at Sugarbush. You have a pass, and where does that pass go? It either goes around your neck or it goes in like your breast pocket. It's close to your heart, right? And you go up to the gate and there's this guy who's standing there with like a radar gun and he, he shoots that gun at your chest and it connects and it makes a sound and goes... It shows, and it shows, oh, that's my name, and uh, I'm clear. I'm good to go. And Jesus being at the Father's side is kind of like that. When your name comes up, oh, it's April Hall. She's good to go. Oh, Sam Helms, yeah, he's one of us. He's good to go. Like, it's like that, Right? Uh, Jesus praying for you on, on your behalf. It, it's this, this constant reminder that when your name comes up, you're clear. You're okay. God's love is for you. His love will always defend you. But listen, this is not all. His love is always on you too. Look at verses 35 through 36 with me. Okay. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Here's what Paul's getting. He says, does it mean God no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Like if we're persecuted or we're hungry or we're destitute or in danger or we're threatened with death, does that mean that God no longer loves us? Like, is there a circumstance or anything in creation that can separate us from his love? He answers this question in verses 37 to 39. No, absolutely not. And all of these things were more than conquerors or we have overwhelming victory, right? Through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nothing, nothing, right? Like he's... he's, he's it's just excluding everything. I mean, there's nothing that will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. His love is always on you. It's not going to ever be taken away. You can't, it, just, you can't cut it off. For a long time, I had a paralyzing fear of heights. And this was a problem for me. Because in 2007, I became an Outward Bound instructor, like leading backpacking trips, like high up in the mountains of California. And in order to be that, like I had to pass like rock climbing tests. Rock climbing definitely pushed me outside of my comfort zone. Like I found myself up high on rock slabs, like my foot on like a little granite crystal, like hundreds of feet above the air. It was kind of scary. Not kind of, it was very scary. And I remember being in situations like racked with fear, like this, the, these anxious thoughts, like I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I was cursing, I was sweating, I'm like holding the rock wall for dear life. But y'all, I didn't die, like I'm telling you the story, right? And the reason I'm able to tell the story is not because I never fell, I fell plenty, I wasn't, like, even now, I'm not a great rock climber. I certainly wasn't when I started. But I've fallen lots in my life as I've climbed. I've missed holds. My feet have slipped many times. I've made mistakes. I sometimes had to say, stop and just take me down. But here's the secret to my climbing survival. No matter what, whether I succeeded in a climb or I failed, no matter what, I was always on belay. Like, I'm able to climb and I'm able to talk about it because no matter how I perform out there on the rock wall, not once has my belayer ever unclipped me and walked away from me, just leaving me hanging. Not once. I've never been separated from him on a climb. His love has never departed from me. Like on the wall, I'm always on belay. Always. The last 15 years, I've become a decent rock climber. I'm still not the best. Kira, I'm sure you're like way better than me. I know that's true. I'm not the worst. I'm not the best. I'm decent. But I'll tell you, like, because I climb on belay, I'm able to go places I couldn't go before. I'm able to do things that I thought were impossible. And it's not because I'm awesome. It's because I'm on belay. And I think this is analogous 
to our life with Jesus. Because in this life, you and I are going to make mistakes. We're going to slip. We're going to fall. We're going to skin our knees. Are you going to face hardship, persecution, famine, or sword? Will you taste death? Of course you can, and of course you will. But you will never experience any of these things by yourself. You will always experience these things as someone who is loved by God, who is claimed by God, and who is gripped by God. You're going to experience everything on belay, which means no matter what happens to you on the wall, no matter what happens to you in this life, you are going to be joined to him. You will be with him now and forever. There is nothing more secure than that. Nothing. There is nothing being, there's no, there's no place more secure than in the grip, the belay hand of the God who loves you. There just isn't. You are secure. So what then shall we say to these things? His love will always defend you. His love is always on you, like that rope and harness. In the age of anxiety, you do not need to be insecure anymore. But in the age of anxiety, you can be infinitely secure.